There's not a person or organization out there that couldn't do with some good advice, particularly in times like these. Perhaps, therefore, it's no surprise that organizations the world over are reaching out and establishing advisory boards as a way of bringing outside expertise in. This rush for talent and insights should come as no surprise. Companies large and small are inundated with a new set of complex challenges. They're asking questions like, how do I build a cybersecurity network to stave off hackers? What does it mean to use artificial intelligence ethically? Or how do we as an organization create diversity and inclusion policies to attract the next generation of talent? You might say this is the job of the leadership team, but who's going to run the day-to-day -day business if these kinds of issues keep popping up? Some say it's the responsibility of the board of directors. Aren't they supposed to see problems arising before they happen? They are, but oftentimes they don't. There are reasons for this, and it all comes out in my conversation this episode with Louise Brokman, founder and CEO of the Brisbane-based Advisory Board Center. But first, a quick word about our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now here's my conversation with Louise. Louise Brookman, founder and CEO of the Advisory Board Center. Thank you so much for joining us on Inside Asia. Nice to be here, Steve. We're going to talk about advisory boards today, and uh, many of our listeners may not know what that means or how to distinguish it from uh, a more traditional board of directors. Would you mind um, edifying, uh, explaining what an advisory board is and why it's coming of age? Mm. An advisory board is quite different to a governance board, where a governance board is a serious undertaking with regards to it being a decision-making process where a governance board um, and a director, it's legally binding, binding on the individual director uh, with regards to the decisions that are being made and then also binding on the organisation to implement on those decisions. So it's a serious undertaking and rightly so. An advisory board is quite different where a governance board is a decision-making model an advisory board is a problem-solving model. So it's not there for the role for the advisors to make decisions about there to road test ideas, be a thinking system, pull ideas apart, bringing it back together. Consensus is a killer in an advisory board setting because it's about really being robust thinking before decisions are being made. So therefore, it's quite a different process. Very helpful. Um, I, I'm familiar with them in the early stages of, of an organization. Startups, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. I know many years back would put an advisory board together, if nothing else, to make them look important. Stacking it with influential people, uh, individuals with connections, demonstrating that they were being taken seriously. But it's evolved from that, has it not? And, and, and is, is, are those the origins or have advisory boards been around for many, many years? I think advisory boards have been around forever, Steve, from the most informal part where we look for advice from, you know, family and friends and peers in business. Whether we want advice or not, we're going to get it. Uh, so um, informal advisory boards in the business sector has, has always been around where we're looking for people to be supporters and advisors at the same time. But it's it's grown up. It's, it's matured a lot um, in the market 
where they're becoming much more formalised to find, you know, advisors that are going to be fit for purpose around a really clearly articulated goal and a charter and then having the right structure and then the right people. So it's purpose-driven. And that's where the impact of advisory boards really come into play. And so the maturing of the market, even just in the last four years, has been absolutely significant. You know, uh, four years ago when we established the Advisory Board Centre as the professional body, we're the only professional body for this sector. So previously, the sector had been operating informally and people, you know, making up their own structures because they're looking for a way to engage advisors but not lose control of their own decision-making process. But now it's really evolved into a space uh, that's really clearly, you know, taking its own form. I know we want to talk a little bit about what that entails, certification to be an advisor versus a, a governance board director. Um, there are differences, but what, what the, in establishing an advisory board, does it require the sanctioning, support, or engagement of the, the, the governance board, or is this something that a leadership team or a CEO can appoint independently? Yeah, so it depends on the stage of, of, of a business or an organisation. So the emerging business market, you're right, you know, that, that was part of the origins of it's an emerging business wanting to get support and, and garner the, the minds, but also the, uh, the, the personal brands of, of people to sit behind a, a particular strategy. In the business sector, the, the business will have an advisory board uh, because they would potentially not have a fully formed governance boards, even though they're directors. They want support, but they don't want to lose control of the asset that they've built. Um, but when you've moved into corporatized advisory boards, that's when you've got a really well-formed governance structure and then you're building ecosystems of advisory boards around it. And that's the market that's really evolving very fast, uh, both in the corporatized sector but also in the business sector where project advisory boards are there to oversee and to really um, uh, put the thinking behind specific strategies inside an organisation. Are, are these just ways of augmenting uh, the expertise or the insights that exist within an organization, whether it be in the board or within the leadership team or within the organization. In other words, are times changing so quickly and demand shifting in such a way that you can't afford necessarily to have a full-time group of individuals on, but an advisory capacity can help, if you will, address some of those short-term or, or high-priority issues. I think it's a bit of a blend, uh, Steve. I think governance boards, you know, we know globally that governance boards are shrinking in size. You know, the cost of directors and officers insurance, the personal liability of directors where people are saying, you know, is it worth it anymore? So if governance boards are shrinking, where do those high-risk conversations go? They've got to be taken off the boardroom table and they've got to be road tested somewhere else. Now, the executive team may or may not have the bandwidth to do that, and may or may not have the independence in thinking to think those things through about the future. So the, the issues that we're faced with now is that decisions need to be made that are different to the way they've been made in the past. So I, I believe that boards of directors need to be really brave in the decisions they make about the future, corporate social responsibility, climate change, um, uh, COVID, changing consumer behaviour. They're very different decisions to navigate. And so if they are taking a, 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 a risk perspective to those decisions, 
it's going to be really tricky for them to make those decisions longer term. And so if there's a mechanism to be able to help that thinking through and problem solving, so by road testing those ideas and bringing it to the boardroom table, so directors are more uh, confident in the decisions that they're making, an advisory board then becomes a complementary process and not a competitive one to the executive team or to the board of directors because it's actually a really different function. And when you've got an advisory board where you've got advisors that are independent, they're not players, they're not actually suppliers, uh, to there's no skin in the game for wanting to skew a particular decision other than saying, let's put some critical thinking around what needs to be done here and what is possible. Then you get a high level element of trust that sits in the in the process of the critical thinking that's being applied. There is no agenda other than wanting to have the best outcome for the organisation itself. Louise, could this be an indication that uh, traditional boards are not keeping up with the times? In fact, um, many boards, at least across Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific, tend to be a bit behind the times. Uh, old boys clubs, uh, you know, not a lot of, of, of diversity. Um, many times they meet quarterly to look at the financial returns, you know, the accounts, the legalities, the regulatory compliance issues, your, your, your bog standard type of thing. In fact, many boards are stacked with lawyers, accountants, others who can just check, do the checks and balances on what's going on. But it appears to me from all of I'm hearing in the market that boards need to stay increasingly focused on future fluent issues. And therefore, they either don't have that competency or that capability within the boards, or they don't have time or capacity to address them. It, it, is, is this just an advisory board, a way of, you know, rushing to put something in to fill a gap? And over time, shouldn't it be the responsibility of organizations to appoint governance boards that are going to do this kind of work and have this type of expertise? Mm, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting question, Steve. Like, is an advisory board a Band-Aid because something is broken? Exactly. Um, I, I, I really feel for boards of directors having that level of constraint um, and we have to be realistic and practical about the approach of this is the future is not easy. And we're looking for one group of people to have the skill set and the oversight, a small group of people to have the skill set and the oversight around many things that need deep expertise. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I really worry that we are not managing our own expectations, but one group of people are going to have the bandwidth to be able to do that. We need deep expertise. We need critical thinking. We need independence to really navigate through some really critical issues. So if a governance board are able to tap into um, that deep expertise for a period of time to look at specific issues, the rise of project advisory boards, I think that is here to stay. And I don't think it's a fad, Steve. And I don't think it's because governance boards are broken it's because things are much more complex these days and, and we need to be able to tap into many, many people to resolve these issues. You think about any board of directors, they've got a huge mandate to manage expectations of so many different stakeholders. How can they actually realistically do that? Yeah, so fair I think, enough. So I think having an ecosystem to be able to support critical thinking, have centralised decision-making, but having decentralised 
um, uh, problem solving and separating the problem solving to decision making so that we are more robust and we're more deliberate in the decision making that we're having because we've shown really good due process in the way that decision is being made. Yeah, fascinating. You know, I, you alluded before to some of the liabilities. Um, there are now requirements in many places that people have director's insurance. Uh, there have been some, uh, some, some cases in recent years which have put directors in harm's way. As a result, even from a recruitment perspective, getting people to actually step across good people, the most qualified people to participate on governance boards is getting harder and harder. Is this advisory option still a way of allowing independents to participate in the process of advising and working and supporting a company without carrying some of those liabilities or risks associated? There's always going to be risks associated with it but it's about minimising the risk around the decision that they're making, but also the personal liability as well. We've had some really great conversations, Steve, with the Insurance Council. Um, so AIC, and we were talking about the, the issues of uh, directors having that, that liability. If we can support, I believe the advisory board sector can support governance boards in showing good due process in the way that those decisions are, are being made, they're generally not going to go to jail because they've shown good due process in the way that they made decisions, whether it's a good one or a bad one. It's, it's showing really good due process um, and having quality thinking sitting around it. I think we've got a responsibility in the advisory board sector to really support governance board directors in the big roles that they have to play. A lot of what you do is help guide and bring prospective advisors, existing advisors through a process to help them be as good as they can be at that job. Uh, uh, I think within um, the world of, of governance uh, boards, you have uh, the, the, uh, the, the directors institutes, which are around the region, typically country-based, but you know they have to be up to date on what's going on within those markets, SGX listing rules, things of the sort, mostly around good governance, I suspect. Um, it sounds like you've built an equivalent for the advisory side. Um, why? are you doing this and what type of skill sets are most essential in order for people to become effective advisory board members? Yeah, I, I guess the, the, the story to that, it's both, both for me personal as well as it is about where the market is. I had an advisory board for my previous business, Steve, and it changed my life back in 2005. And when I sold that business, uh, which what you were doing there. Yeah, it, it just just for the for the listeners, what what was your previous previous business, and why did you set up an advisory board? <laughs> yeah, well, it, well, it's it's a good story and a story, and it's a sad one. So the uh, the year before I set up my advisory board, I we were commercialising a, a software package, which was Australia's first HR software package for the small and medium sized business sector, and we went to launch it. And we it, we end up with thousands of businesses using that software, but at the launch, we misjudged the implementation phase and the market take-up. So I ended up having to sell everything that I owned to keep the business going. And so a year later, we had the opportunity to really scale this business. And I thought, I can't afford to sell anything more. <laughs> and this has got a really big opportunity to do something really good. So I didn't want to second guess the decisions that I was making. So I thought, I need an advisory board. I didn't know what one was, but I thought, I need this. So I am really confident in the decisions that I'm making. So I'm not second guessing it. And I'm confident and deliberate and I'm going to stay the course. And that was great. It, that was absolutely game changing for me personally, as well as for the business. 
Um, but, you know, I see that every day with businesses um, uh, when, they, when they are trying to make decisions. Is that a good decision or not? Uh, I don't know. And that's where the advisory board has both the impact on the business itself but on business owners in particular on a personal level. Then when we, we look at, you know, we spent five years researching, testing and validating the advisory board sector globally. We did research on 430 consulting firms in 17 countries to evaluate what's going on in the area of advice. And we saw by 2016 the democratisation of advice was here to stay um, and, and advisory boards knowing where the, where the boundaries are between governance boards and advisory boards, what the roles are of, an, of a chair versus advisors and where the ethical boundaries are in that, that there was no professional body globally looking after the advisory board sector. And mm -hmm. so there were in governance boards and there are with legal and accounting, but no one was looking after this really large market of advisory boards. And so we, took, we had the undertaking then, say, we're not just going to build a business here. We're going to take a step back and really support the professionalism of the sector and to support mm. it by creating, you know, the only professional body globally to really caretake and nurture this sector that's going to be impactful and a global community that, that are able to collaborate and, and build advisory boards that are really fit for purpose. So it's less technical training and more where do you fit in? Where can you be of greatest value? when to speak up and not to speak up, how to engage and not to engage, where to get involved and not to get involved, I guess, in order to avoid any legal issues. Are these the types of things you're referring to? That's right. What is my value and who's going to value it? Interesting. Yeah. You, know, you, you also raised something else, Louise, which is quite interesting, which is in this day and age, a CEO is expected to pretty much be omnipresent a god unto himself and to everybody else. And as you mentioned, stakeholder capitalism is displacing shareholder capitalism, which means how can you possibly, as somebody at the helm, know everything about, uh, everything about every stakeholder group? Um, in the old days, it used to be you could rely on your leadership team. You know, you would have individuals from marketing to communications to finance that could guide you through some of these issues. But so much of what they're doing, at least in large corporations, is heads down, just executing, uh, you know, not transforming, but just operating effectively. Are, are you seeing now this as a way of alleviating some of the pressure on the leadership teams and giving the CEO an opportunity to seek advice from people outside, independent, instead of a bunch of yes men, now he has people who will seriously and authentically challenge him or her uh, if there's a situation arising, a new technology coming into market, or so one of these stakeholder issues that we've referenced. Yeah, yeah. So you you got your executive team, but which are you know, programmed to operate the, the, the business itself, right? And so it's really difficult to have that line of sight about the future that's going to be independent out of the role of what you're employed employed to do. We look at some of the, you know, some of the trends that are happening today because of COVID um, and, and potentially because it was going to happen anyway. But um, you look at the global context, you've got global businesses and that the executives can't travel into market. And so you might have a global business and we've got a, a whole community of advisory board uh, members in Shanghai, in Hong Kong and in Singapore. And one of the trends that we're seeing in, in Shanghai because of the complexity of China is, say, for instance, a global organisation has a CEO in that market. How is it that, that that CEO going to be really supported in market 
when the executive team and the directors may not have that experience in that market, nor, nor are they able to travel to provide that localised support. So the trend that we see is that a CEO is appointed and then an advisory board is appointed on side that CEO to be able to have that local context with local people that understand those local conditions that have no agenda, that are independent of that, of that CEO and independent of the organisation to help them protect their asset and their business interests in that market. That mm -hmm. just makes really good business sense to be able to do that. How typically is an advisory board assembled? In other words, does it start out with a trusted advisor, somebody the CEO knows and believes in and has an area of expertise? Is there a formal process of building an advisory board? In other words, the same way you might build a governance board? Yeah, it's, it's quite a different process. Uh, so it's about understanding what is, what is the business need and what are the priorities of that business or that organisation? If you're really clear about the, the needs of, of the organisation and map it out to what's the role of the executive, the CEO, the directors and the advisory board so that you've got a clear mandate about where conversations and where decisions are held and where they're not. Then if you've got a really clear understanding of what the advisory board is there to do and what it's not there to do, then most organisations will then recruit for an independent certified chair. The chair will then build out the protocols with the organisation around the charter, uh, the structure, um, and then bring on the advisory board members with the organisation because the appointment is done by the organisation and not by the chair. So everybody maintains their independence in that structure as well. So mm -hmm. it takes generally for the business sector three months to establish an advisory board in a corporatized environment. Uh, where um, uh, there's um, uh, there's an existing structure, generally takes about six months to do. There's a very clear mandate around a uh, about around a process like a merger and acquisition or market entry. It may take a, s a shorter period of time, but it's very clearly defined boundaries of what the advisory board is there to do and not to do. Then the structure of advisory boards then get implemented. It's very important that a chair knows what they're doing. So you're not creating an environment of duplicated conversations, but also an environment where expectations are blurred to, to create environments of shadow directorship um, and, and mistrust between the different mechanisms inside an organisation. You know, it makes me think about um, some of the challenges that some of the uh, big corporate boards have right now, which is introducing into their ranks uh, people from uh, younger people or or, or um, diversity or people with skills that are non-traditional. Um, could the advisory board serve as a kind of uh, training platform, if you will, like the minor leagues before you're called up into the major leagues, where you get to understand some of the issues and challenges of an organization. They get to see you in action, understand how you behave, how you engage, the kind of value you bring before perhaps nominating you to join a board? Or is that really not the way this rolls? This is a different set of requirements and skills and capabilities and competencies that are different, fundamentally different from what you might want or what you might prefer to have on a, on a governance board. Yeah, you're pointing to a really uh, important aspect of advisory boards. Generally, in most countries, it's not regulated or legislated. Now, that, that flexibility becomes its strength because it can be really fit for purpose. What does the organisation need? If it doesn't need succession planning and building up the next generation of executives internally. 
So you can actually, and, and this is a study that I did in 2016, actually completed it in 2016. We did a study on 26,000 employees across 607 businesses. Um, and we found that the number one complaint inside organisations by employees was meetings. <laughs> so if, if an organisation internally can improve its meetings, what kind of impact could that have, you know, around the confidence and the way decisions are being made? Now, inside an organisation, you've got that middle rank of the next generation of leaders. If you build advisory boards and shift a meeting structure into an advisory board structure where it's really well formed to then build that next generation of leaders, that is possible if you're really clear in what the scope is and what they're there to do. So these peer advisory boards are really an important aspect that we are seeing especially coming out of Singapore, um, and in particular Singapore, they're doing it really well, where you, we are seeing C-suite executives becoming certified chairs and building advisory boards internally to really shift the quality of their meeting structures into an advisory board structure where it's really goal-driven and really focused to be purposeful. And I think this is a future generational aspect of the way organisations will be managed internally. When you say building advisory boards internally, you mean bringing the advisors into the organization or actually appointing members from within the company to serve on the advisory board? Yeah, a bit of both. And, both. And, and, and it depends on the mapping process as to what that structure looks like. Does it report to the governance board? Does it report to the executive? Do you have a structure of internal executives or do you have external advisors or do you have a blend? Uh, do you have an independent chair or you have an internal executive as the chair and have external parties internally? And that is the that is the absolute beauty of an advisory board of saying, what is it that we're trying to do? What are the problems we're trying to solve or the goals that we're trying to reach? And let's build a structure that's really fit for what we're trying to do. And that's where those protocols and the principles, that an advisory board process means nothing if you have no principles in place. And uh, last year, we released the world's first best practice framework for advisory boards. And it's a best practice, it's not a best practice standard, which is process driven. It's best practice framework, which is principles led. So if you follow on this, the right principles and the ethics around it, then you can then make it fit for the environment that it's in. You know, the more you speak, the more it reminds me of what we used to refer to as task forces. You, you have a problem, you have an acquisition, you've got to, you know, not a technology issue. You bring the best and the brightest across the organization together, and you just try to problem solve. This sounds like it's one step beyond that. It's almost like task force on steroids, mm -hmm. a little bit of, of, of principles and values and practices and things which are more formalized yeah. in order to get the best out of it is what I'm hearing. Is that right? Yeah, you've got some frameworks um, so that it keeps it safe, it keeps it focused, but it doesn't create constraint, Steve. Mm. You don't want to stifle these models by overlaying it by complexity. It's got to be simple, but it's got to be strong. Yeah. What are some of the leading skill sets that you see your clients or, or, or at least corporations or organizations looking for when it, when it comes to them building their advisory teams? Yeah, for all of business advisory boards, uh, and that's generally for the business sector, $1.5 to $100 million turnover, they really look for a high level of commercial acumen, right? So really business savvy, street smart people with a mix of entrepreneurs, a chair that's got a high level of commercial and financial acumen um, and uh, C-suite executives who are leaders in their field. 
when you get to corporatized advisory boards and project advisory boards, that's when it starts to become more and more specialist, uh, where you've got people who are have got deep thinking in specific aspects that they can then tap into. What would you say, from all your experience and all your exposure, makes an exceptional advisor? What are the qualities, uh, if you can categorize them, that are most essential? Um, it's interesting you think about advice, it's, you think about your voice, but actually it's not your voice, it's the ability to listen with purpose, um, to be able to be to be able to question and think through with other people, to build conversations, not swap statements, to be humble and to be kind. Listen to what's being said and what's not being said and really probe through that. So it's not about swapping statements, it's about building conversations. The other part of it is that sitting on an advisory board, you are wanting the best for somebody else because generally it's not because there's something in it for you. You're not a player. And so there's a high level of humility that comes into being an advisor and being humble and being kind during times of transition and trying to think through and, and helping someone else to be brave means that I think that compassion that comes through it be really be absolutely purposeful and adding your direct experience absolutely, um, but uh, that that humility I think is a really important aspect to being an effective advisor. Perhaps it's just what we need at the right point in time with so much going on, in order to be able to get a a, a fresh uh, a wave of talent into the markets into these organizations uh, with, with in order to reduce the risk should they actually play a broader role or join uh, a, 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 a form of board of directors? Steve, I, I, I agree. We, we say in, in the current market, we're born for this moment. You know, it, it's, um, it's, it's needed, uh, that intellectual honesty that sits around a table. It, it is for the future advisor, you know, the, the younger advisors coming through with the different skills, may not have the experience, but they've got the skills um, and, the, and the applicable thinking, they're natural problem solvers uh, because they've been born with technology, you know, but also it's not just about the next generation. We've got a lot of people that are exiting the workforce that don't need to check out incredible amount of knowledge. So you've got the skills coming through now that you've got the, the, the wealth of knowledge that's been accumulated over many years that we can still use that, that, that knowledge and that experience that they have and they can still contribute to society in a, and to business in a new way. So it gives them a new lease of life too. But we mm. can actually harness that, that, um, that experience without it being actually a fixed, um, a fixed asset inside organisation. So it, it's, a, it's a good opportunity to harness both sides of the equation. Uh, Louise, do, do you find resistance to the idea of advisory boards? Are some companies still so traditionally minded that they don't like the idea of bringing in outside views and therefore sharing inside secrets? I noticed from some of the research you ran a couple of years ago, uh, you note there's something in the range of 660,000 advisory boards globally, uh, about 2 million plus advisors, and in that which, which you, you report being a 52% increase um, uh, since 2019. It looks like the vast majority are either North America or Europe. Still, Asia, Australia, you know, are are low. Uh, they're not as uh, willing to embrace advisory boards. Why would that be? 
Well, when you look at, you know, the, the over 2 million advisory board professionals globally, you look at the population of Australia and New Zealand, you think, well, 3% of the total advisory board professional market, you probably think, well, that makes sense <laughs> because there's not so many of us down here. In, in Asia, I see, you know, huge potential for growth in, in advisory boards um, uh, uh, without a doubt. The, the US market, you know, 45% of the advisory board professionals globally are there. I, th I think um, uh, it's not for every business and every organisation. It's not the fix for every situation. Sometimes an advisory board is the right mechanism. Sometimes it's not. But what I do believe is that advisory boards are really relevant for 6% of the business sector, not the corporatised market. I think that those advisory boards are, a, are, another, are, are another mechanism. But for the business sector, 6% of businesses are really right for advisory boards. And the reason why I say that is that 6% of businesses in Canada have advisory boards. In Australia, we think it's about 3% of businesses that have advisory boards, so we've got about another 12,000 to go. But the OECD say that, you know, for fast, uh, high-growth organisations that have 20% growth year in, year out for over three years um, is, is definitely defined as a high-growth uh, business, 20% growth. 6% of, um, of uh, businesses globally are defined as high-growth uh, potential businesses. Now, we know the prime motivation to have an advisory board in the business sector is 75% of them say it's because we want to grow. That's our motivation. So it kind of makes sense that advisory boards is relevant in the business sector to 6% of the market, not all of the market. Mm. A, a quick toggle on this. Private equity firms, classic examples, need to deploy large amounts of capital in a short period of time, limited number of in-house teams with, with, with limited expertise. Many of them are former investment bankers. Uh, maybe they've run a business. Um, they seem to be, at least in Southeast Asia, this part of the world, reluctant to appoint advisory boards. Have you had any experience with that? And is that the case down in Australia as well? Um, and do you have any thoughts as to why that might be? They seem to me to be the ideal candidate for developing advisory boards to support their portfolio companies once they're invested, but even as they're doing the due diligence and, and exploring uh, their new investments. What's going on there? Uh, there's a lot of work to be done in that area, Steve, because I think you're right. There's a lot of potential in that market, but it, it's, it requires a level of education about what advisory boards uh, are and what they're not and what they used to be versus what they are today. So I think there's a, maybe there's some work to be done around that, 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 that disconnect. Uh, we've had uh, investment uh, groups from Europe entering into Singapore, setting up uh, social impact investments across Asia Pacific and setting up advisory boards over each one of those individual investments. Now, I think that's a really smart strategy with regards to deployment of funds as well as investor confidence as well. So I'd really like to see uh, an increase in, in the utilisation of advisory boards to support those investments because that's where you're going to get critical mass but also you're going to get critical impact um, around that because you've got a lot of different uh, stakeholders involved in that. And I think uh, caretaking that from a co corporate social responsibility I think there's a good place for advisory boards to play in that space. Yeah, it's a complex world. Uh, it's only getting more complex. And therefore, you would think it would be the perfect time to introduce these types of, of talent pools in order to support the business in any way possible. Louise, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I hope to be speaking in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, there's a lot to be done. A lot to be done. Thanks, Steve.
That was my conversation with Louise Brokman, founder and CEO of the Brisbane-based Advisory Board Center. Our discussion made one thing all too apparent. Running a business has never been more complex. It was hard enough when the primary objective was growth and profit. Now CEOs have a lot more to think about. It gives a whole new meaning to what keeps you up at night. It's a wonder that not every senior executive has turned into a walking zombie. To make the point, think Ahab, that crazed ship captain from the Herman Melville novel Moby Dick. As a leader, he had a singular focus, find and kill the white whale. I'm aware this may not be the most appropriate example in an age of sustainability, but stick with me. If Ahab were alive today and still captain, chasing Moby Dick across the oceans would be only part of the job. He'd have other issues, like personnel. His crew would need tending to. He'd have to make sure his first mate Starbuck felt heard. He'd need to make space for his harpoonist Queequeg, ensuring he was able to express himself, tattoos and all. Had Pippin, the most junior member of his crew, filed a complaint? Perhaps swabbing the deck would generate feelings of low self-worth. Then, of course, there would be the matter of processing the whales once they were caught. Was it being done humanely? Were they polluting the oceans with the unwanted remains? Could they fire back at anti-whaling activists if fired upon first? These questions and more would plague the captain of the Pequod. I'm being facetious, of course, but I surely doubt the crotchety old captain would have the skills, wherewithal, or singular knowledge to handle all the new challenges coming his way. What could he do? Create an advisory board, perhaps. Not just to block and tackle the day-to-day issues, but to ask the bigger questions and see problems arising before they sink the ship. They might ask, is there a better way to hunt whales? Is there a better way to extract the oil? What is the long-term demand for whale oil? Has anyone heard of electricity? Hey, I know this guy Thomas Edison. He might have some answers. Should we sell the ship and invest in light bulbs? I might suggest that had Ahab formed an advisory board, the story of Moby Dick might have ended very differently. No amount of hope or stargazing will change the outcome. Expertise is a must. The new world order demands it. As stakeholder capitalism and corporate responsibility take hold, finding people with nimble mindsets, vast networks, lateral thinking, and deep experience will make all the difference. More likely than not, this kind of talent is caught up in its own pursuits. People with these kinds of skills may not have a lot of time, but they might be open to lending a helping hand. Advisory boards fit the bill. Luis reminds us that running a business is increasingly about real-time problem-solving, oftentimes on the fly. Standing at the helm, holding the wheel, and keeping the ship windward might have worked for Ahab, but in today's choppy commercial waters, the new captains of industry have even bigger fish to catch. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. Please share the podcast and others with friends and colleagues. We have over 180 episodes available on our website or wherever you search for and listen to your podcasts. Everyone free of charge. All you need do is subscribe, and each week you'll be alerted to a new installment highlighting a topic or trend that shows how corporate purpose, sustainability, and 21st century thinking are stacking up to guide Asia's future.
Prefer reading to listening? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Visit us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. Leave your name and email address and start receiving weekly updates that highlight key points from the discussion, provide links to additional insights and articles, and reference earlier podcasts on related subjects. As always, we thank you for listening. Thank you.